We're going to go this morning to Luke chapter 5. We do have some sermon notes. The ushers will be handing those out if you would like them. Luke chapter 5. We're going to talk about being face first in the fishes. And yes, I know that's not grammatically the best way to say it, but hopefully by the end of the message you'll understand why we're going with face first in the fishes. Luke chapter 5. Uh, while the gentlemen are doing that, I uh, wanted to mention, continue to be in prayer for Jim Talent and his family. Have the funeral tomorrow for the passing of his father. So if you can keep that in prayer. And also uh, be in prayer for Jeremy Young. He had an accident at work this week uh, where uh, his thumb was cut open, uh, maybe tendons damaged, things like that. Uh, and Jeremy plays piano and guitar and uses that even in the ministries here. Uh, so he's gonna, the doctor's going to be looking at it this week to see if there's any major tendon damage, things like that. So I know Jeremy would greatly covet and appreciate your prayers. And we would too, because we get to enjoy some of that music as he shares uh, even in the, the ministry here. So uh, continue to keep those, those items in prayer throughout the week. Have you ever, uh, Luke chapter 5, we, we get into a situation where uh, Peter's going to, to meet somebody. But in this case, it's a little bit different. He's going to meet Jesus, but have you, ever, have you ever been in the situation where uh, you, you meet somebody who's a Mr. Know-it-all? You know, y- you start talking to them, and you could, be, you could be talking about your profession. You know, it, w- it would be like if I went to somebody who's an artist, and I started to say, you know, I, I think you should probably paint with a little bit better hue here, and this brush would be, I would not have a clue. But if I came up and acted like I knew it, and I knew exactly what I was going to say, the individual who's actually an artist is kind of looking, oh, this, this guy is just... I wish you'd just stop talking because they know it all. We've all, we've all been there. We've all faced those Mr. Know-it-all type individuals. There, there have been a couple moments in my life where I've, I've met what I thought was a Mr. Know-it-all. And I, I met them and in my arrogance, in my pride, I, I learned a little bit. Uh, there was, when I was in seminary, uh, I was working at a tubing mill. And I was working in this tubing mill. We would pull copper pipe for the baseboard, for baseboard heaters, and we would continually run it through a die, and we would, we would mill it down until it, it hit the right inside and outside diameters, and it would be ready for the, for the baseboard heating. And while I, was, while I was doing this, there was this, this older gentleman who came up to me, and he's like, hey, when, every once in a while the tube would break, and you would have to take it out of the die, and you would have to put it up on a shelf, and you would slide it down the shelf, and then it would have to get re, repointed so it could be pulled through the die. And I would just take it and I would throw it on. And, and this gentleman comes over to me and goes, hey, son. I, whenever somebody starts with, hey, son, it's like my, I answer like, excuse me, I'm 22. At that point, at that point I was. <laughs> and he, he, he looks at me and goes, when you're, when you're putting it up on the bench here after you break it off, you, wanna, you actually want to take it down and you want to set it up. Don't just, don't just shove it down there. I'm like, oh, boy, this guy really cares about his copper tubing. I'm not, I sort of just blew him off and... I was like, whatever, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm working on my master's degree, you dropped out of high school, I know what I'm talking, and I had that arrogant, prideful aspect. It was probably a couple hours later, I had a piece break, and I was putting it on, and I'm shoving it, I'm shoving this tube that's been broken, shoving it down with my hand, and shoving it down to put on the, the shelf, and it hit a little end at the end, and it shot back into my hand, right through my glove, right into my skin, and I, I, to this day, if you'd like to see it later, I have, it's not, it's not my Jesus scar, but I sometimes think of it that way because it, right here, it's got the, I took a huge old chunk of flesh out, had to go to the doctor, had to get everything cleaned out, had to get it all taken care of, came back to work the next day, guess who's going to meet me, you know? And he's like, so, uh, how's your hand? I said, it's good, it hurts. And he's like, here, let me show you mine. And he, he pulled it out. And he's like, I was, just, I was just trying to show you something that he had learned from times gone by. There was another situation where I was in high school. Uh, there was an individual named Clyde. For those of you who don't know, I love baseball. I play baseball. I enjoyed it. Uh, it was part of my life, and it was just something that I, I did all the way through college. Uh, and I, I was a catcher. And I loved catching. And I was, uh, I was a very, uh, I, was, I was cocky. I'll admit it. I was, I was a very cocky high school baseball player. Uh, and felt I had those abilities to be able to be that way. Well, there's, there's one day at practice, my dad said, hey, there's a, there's a guy coming, he's going to help you out with some of your catching. I don't need help with my catching, I'm doing really good. You know, people are watching me play, things are going great. And there's this, there's this guy, his name's Clyde, 55 at the time. He comes like hobbling and he's carrying a leg. He's carrying, I'm like, how is this guy going to help me? He's walking over and he's like, hey, I'm here to help you with your, with your catching. 
seriously, dad? And, uh, and I could tell, and Clyde, Clyde had this thing. So he's like, hey, we're going to work on improving your timing to throw out base runners who are trying to steal on you. So I'm doing this, and our guys on our team are stealing, and I'm working on throwing them out, and all this is happening. And he goes, hey, you need to change this and this. I'm like, okay. He's like, no, move out of the way. Let me show you. <laughs> so I'm looking and going, yeah, this, this ought to be good. I saw you. He starts, he starts throwing out every single guy. These are 17, 18-year-olds trying to steal. He's throwing them out. He's dropping to his knees and throwing them out, which is a catcher. That's, you know, that's pretty impressive when you can just drop to your knees and throw a guy out at second base. And I remember my jaw just being like, okay, I am completely humiliated that this 55-year-old man is out, is, is out doing me. And it created this, this new opportunity where I thought this guy was Mr. Know-it-all. And Clyde became, he honestly became my mentor when it came through baseball. He became the guy who taught me the intricacies of, the, of catching. My dad taught me my love for baseball and the game. But Clyde taught me all the little things that I needed to know because at my time, that was my God. I was planning on playing Major League Baseball. I was going in that direction. And Clyde was helping me. He was the one who took me to my tryouts. He was the one who took me to meet scouts. He was the one who did all those things. And it was because I finally said, wait, he might not look the part, but this guy, he had, he had, he had the abilities to do that. I have to wonder if that's how Peter felt in Luke chapter 5. When all of a sudden he's working on his nets, he's been out fishing all night long, and here comes this crowd of people, and they're all following after Jesus. They're all watching him. They're all looking for Jesus, and they want to hear from him. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 5 that they're pressing against him around the Sea of Galilee, the Lake Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee. And while they're there, they're coming, and they want to hear, uh, they want to hear, a word from God. I'm going to go to Luke chapter 5 because I'm in Mark chapter 5. So there we go. Uh, and, and they want to hear from the word of God. They want to hear Jesus speak. And as they're pressing, you can see the pictures. The crowds are pushing in against Jesus. Jesus is backing up and he gets to the point where it's like, I can't go any further. The lake's right behind me. He looks around and he sees, he sees these boats that are there. And as he, as he looks around, he sees these fishermen who've been exhausted as the nights went on. After a long night, they're mending, they're cleaning their nets, as it says in verse number two, that, that they're there, they're working on it, washing these nets. And Jesus looks, and it's, it's very interesting. Like, I used to think, like, he's, he said, hey, could I borrow your boats? But it, it says first that he steps into the boats. And he steps into the boats, and as he steps into the boat, in verse number three, uh, he, it says he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and then Jesus is going to pray or ask him uh, that he would thrust out a little bit from the, from the land, and then Jesus is going to sit down, and he's going he's to teach the, the people. What happens in this passage, that's just a quick setting. You have the, the crowds who are pressing against Jesus. They want to hear Jesus speak, but then you also have these fishermen who've been out all night. They're weary. They've been trying to fish. They didn't catch anything. Their, their livelihood is in these fish. All these things are happening to these individuals, and that's the setting that, that we find ourselves in in Luke chapter 5. And then this ping, or, uh, ping, pong, ping pong would work too. This tennis match starts to occur between Peter and Jesus. Jesus is going to ask a request, and Peter is going to give a response. And then Jesus is going to act or ask a request, and Peter is going to give a response, and we're going to see this go back and forth. So the first request that Jesus asks, found in verse number three, where Jesus asked Peter to use his boat to teach the people, hey, can, can I use this? Can I, can I get in? Can I go out? Can, can we thrust out just a little bit in the natural amphitheater, the glass, the, uh, the water, uh, almost like a sounding glass would, would go out, and he could speak to the crowds uh, using, using that, that method. And so Peter, in a simple, simple act of obedience, he responds in verse number three, even though it's seemingly insignificant, Jesus is going to use Peter's kindness here and his possessions to proclaim the truth of the kingdom. Jesus takes something small. Now, it's not small. It's a 20 to 30 foot boat. But he's going to take what Peter does and he's going to take Peter's kindness, and he's going to use it to teach these people. How do we know it's the kingdom of God? If you look back up verse number uh, 43 of chapter 4, it says, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities. And he preached in the other synagogues, and as it came to pass. So it's just inferred the idea that even Luke's saying, hey, what Jesus is doing is he's going about, and he's teaching people about the kingdom of God. He's teaching them about repentance, about the importance of changing your life, the importance of having a perspective and a right focus on Jesus Christ and his ministry and his mission. And so Jesus begins to, to work on Peter, and he's, he's looking at Peter and saying, hey, this is, it may seem insignificant, but I need you. And I think it's important for us to remember that service to Christ in small ways 
is significant to ministry. When Noble started uh, up here, I'm like, oh, I might as well just give you my whole first point and let you preach. Because exactly what Noble was saying, I'm sitting down there saying amen and amen and amen. All the little things that we need to be involved in are part of ministry. It's part of our life. It is who we are. You may say, it's just prayer. No, it is prayer. It is not insignificant. It's just writing a letter. No, that is not something small. All I did was just took the, took the vehicles and cleaned them up for the church. No, that is significant. I just came in, the, tr- the trees needed trimming. No, that's significant. Doing things around the church for the glory and the ministry of Jesus Christ, it may seem small because we don't get the accolades, but in God's eyes, it's, it's, it's huge. And we need to be involved in looking and taking those seemingly insignificant things, taking our possessions and using them for the Lord. Say, well, it's just a party I hosted at my house for some, for some ladies, for some, for some men, for a, a youth group. It's, no, that's not. That's using your abilities, using your possessions. I just gave a ride to some kids to church. That was all. No, it's using your abilities, using your possessions. God wants us to take things that may seem insignificant and use them for him. And that's what Peter does here. He takes his boat, he thrusts out into the water just a little bit. Jesus assumes his normal position of sitting down to teach, and he begins to teach the people and and shares with them. And as he finishes up teaching, it says he finishes, and he's going to give Peter another request. And uh, he he finishes the public teaching, but now he's about to get personal, as I I put there. He looks and he says, hey, Simon, uh, can we launch out into the deep? Now, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's almost, it's sort of like a request, but aren't times it requests, aren't they more like commands or strong suggestions? Has your boss ever looked at you and said, don't you think you should probably do this? It's not, it's a, it's a question, but you know, at least if you're, if you're reading between the lines correctly, it's like, do that. That happens, that happens to all of us. Where it's like, don't you think you probably, your pastor would look at me and say, don't you think you should probably have a PowerPoint? No, it's too much work. <laughs> no, it, it, but he might say something. He wouldn't say that, but that idea. And the inference is, hey, do this. Christ is doing the same thing. Hey, would you launch out into the deep or launch out? I want you to do this. So what's Peter going to do? Is he going to launch out? Is he going to let down his nets? How, how would I respond? What, what would happen? What's interesting is the words that Jesus uses here. He looks at Peter in this one. He says, you launch out into the, 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 the deep. It's very singular. It's, it's pointed at Peter. Now, that makes sense. Peter being the, the seeming leader of the group, he's going to be the representative of this group, even throughout this passage and for years to come. When we talk about the disciples, we often think about Peter as the head, as the leader. So Jesus is even here doing that. But he does not leave this, this uh, story just with Peter because he singles out Peter. But then he says, and they all, now you all, put down your net. So in verse number, verse number four there, he says, you launch out into the deep singular, talking to Peter, and you all let down your nets for, for a drought of fish. So he's looking at James and Andrew and John and, and Peter, and he's saying, hey, l- let's go fishing. Let's, let's do that. Now, I, I know there's some of you in here who anytime anybody would say, let's go fishing, there's, there's no question. You don't care if you fished all night, you're going to go back out and go fishing. It's, it's the way it is. I, I looked at Zach last night. We were coming back after hunting and uh, had a long day and didn't see anything in the evening. And he was exhausted. I said, hey, you want to go hunting? And he's like, no. Ever again? He's like, no, I just don't want to go right now. He, he was exhausted from the, the time in the woods and, and that was a really good thing for him. But he just had that, that mindset. Put yourself in the shoes of these individuals. You have been out fishing all night. You are exhausted. You just finished cleaning your nets which after you would go fishing, you would clean your nets so that they're ready for the next day to fish. So you've put all the time in slaving away getting that done. You're exhausted, you're tired, you want to go home, you want to see your family, you want to go get a bite to eat. And now this guy who we don't know at this point how much Jesus and the, these individuals, Peter, James, John, Andrew, how much interaction they've had, how much do they know about Jesus? They're not, they're not many years into their ministry with Jesus. This is the onset. So how much they know about him, they might know he's a popular individual, they might be somebody, hey, we should follow this guy, he's important, but it's not, they're not bosom buddies yet. And this guy says, hey, I want to go fishing. I'm not that guy. I, I, I love it. And what's interesting to me is you get this play of the carpenter versus the fisherman. Here comes Mr. Know-it-all. 
He's going to tell Peter how to fish. He's going to tell them, hey, let's go out into the deep. Let's go out in the middle of the day. Let's let down our nets. I know you've already done it, but I know how to get this done. Now, we know that's not the attitude of Jesus. But could Peter have assumed that attitude? Could he have looked and said, hey, I've been out there all night. I've been out all night. I'm tired. I'm weary. I've just cleaned the nets. I've been unsuccessful. It's the wrong time to go right now, Jesus. That's the wrong method. Some argue whether or not it was shallow fishing or deep fishing and all those different dynamics. He says, I don't have the time. I have other stuff to do. When it comes to serving God, do you ever find yourself making those excuses? Do you ever find, and, and I get it, we're tired. I understand we're busy. I understand that at times I, I can't hand out an invitation because the last time I tried to hand out an invitation, I was not successful. It doesn't work. I can't, I can't talk to my neighbors because they don't want to hear about Jesus. It wasn't, well, it's, it's not the right time. They're going through a really hard time in life, so it's not the right time to talk about God. I don't have time to do it. Do would we find ourselves, if we were Peter, if, I, if I'm Peter, I would have made an excuse, just flat out honestly. I would have looked and said, Jesus, I, you know, I'm tired and I don't have time. Why don't you come back tomorrow? Why don't you come out tonight with us? Let's go out tonight. You can enjoy the fishing tonight. We'll go back out. We'll do it again. Let me go get some sleep. And yet Peter does not make the excuse. His response, we find in verses five to six. They are going to, they're going to shift gears and they're going to go out. And Simon answering unto him says, Master, we've toiled all night. We've taken nothing. So he, he, he gives his professional advice and he looks and he says, Master. What's interesting about the word there, it's not just like, okay, you're a great teacher, Master type thing. But a number of the commentators talk about that this is Peter the one who is steering the ship, the one who is told to launch out into the deep, it's him relinquishing control and saying, you, you direct us, you tell us where to go. Because right now you're the master. I've done this already all night long. I don't know where to go. I don't know where the fish are at. You're, you're in charge of the boat. You, you tell us where to go. So Christ becomes the guide of this trip. Even though he's the carpenter, even though he's not been in this boat before, he's gonna tell them, let's go here. Let's go out into the deep. Let's go to this direction. And despite his professional and rational opinion, let's be honest, Peter's, Peter is not thinking irrationally here. He's just looking and saying, hey, I've been out all night. We have toiled. We have labored. We haven't caught a thing. But at, at your behest, I'll obey. We'll go. And so Peter, Peter takes the personal responsibility. He doesn't say, they're going to go. He doesn't say, hey, why don't you guys take him out? You know, I'm going to go. I'll do tonight's shift. You guys take him out. He takes personal responsibility for his obedience. He looks and says, hey, this, this relationship or this following Christ is my responsibility. It's not my wife's responsibility. It's not the person across the aisle's responsibility. It is not my parents' responsibility. It is not uh, my coworkers' responsibility. Your responsibility to obey Jesus Christ is just that. It's your responsibility. It's not an irrational thing. It is not a grievous thing. The commands of God are not grievous. It is a responsibility that you and I have to look before God and say, hey, you're God, you're the master, you're the guide, and I am going to obey, I am going to follow what you say to do. And then breaks in the miracle. The, the change starts to happen. It's, it's instant. I mean, he says, they, Luke says, they let down, they let down the, the nets, verse 5. And when they had done this, so the idea is the moment it happens, they enclosed a great multitude of fish and their nets were breaking. And they had to beckon to their partners. Hey, come, come to bring the other ship. And they asked for the other ship to help them. And when they bring the other ship in, it takes two ships at least four men, to start pulling this up. And as they pull this, this, this whole massive amount of fish up, start loading it into the boats, these boats that are 20 to 30 foot long, big enough for multiple people in them, actually begin to sink. There's, there's so much success here that disaster has to be diverted. 
It's all, it's all occurring, and they're looking and saying, hey, help us, come in. Whether they were at the shore, whether they were out in another area, we don't, we don't know exactly, but they all come running, you know, running in. They didn't run in. Uh, they go paddling over, and they, they get over, and they're loading up the boats, and the boats are filled, and, and this moment occurs in these individuals' lives. Now, Luke focuses in directly on Peter because Peter is going to make some proclamations and Peter is going to do something here in a moment that, that is going to be a little disgusting, honestly. But the other men are involved in this too, as we'll see in the passage. The, the, what happens, the, one of the questions that comes out about this is what kind of miracle was this? Is this a miracle of, of God over nature? You know, that he directed the fish? That's a possibility, but I truly believe this is a miracle of God's guiding and God's knowledge. He knew where the fish were. Peter relinquishes control of the boat or the direction of the boat. God guides them to the location where the fish are. Could he have still made, possibly, I think a lot of pages and a lot of trees have been killed in commentaries over deciding, is this a miracle of nature? Is this a miracle of guiding? Is it, it's, it is. It's, it's God being miraculous, breaking into the events of nature and the normal common knowledge of mankind. But he really does show a miracle of being able to guide and a miracle of knowledge. And I think it highlights the fact that Jesus truly is the only one capable of leading us. As the king, as the Lord, as the great guide of our life, he is the one that we are to follow. And yet, we find ourselves not wanting to follow the clear commands of Scripture because we want to rationalize it away so that we can enjoy the things that we want in our lives. So this miracle, this miracle of these fish occur, and it causes this great change because now we're going to go from Jesus making requests and Peter responding to all of a sudden we're going to flip here after this miracle. Peter's going to make a request, and Jesus is going to respond. And it changes up here. Notice, notice what happens with Peter's request. Peter understands at this moment that only an agent of God could produce these results. Whether or not, I don't, I don't believe personally that this is a complete, right at the moment, his complete understanding of the full deity of Jesus Christ, that this man right here in the boat is 100% God, 100% man. I don't believe Peter got that all because later on you go through the gospels, he's still wrestling through is he the Christ? Is he the Lord? Who is this man that I'm with? But I do believe at this moment, he, he understood uh, this guy, this guy is from, he's from God. Whether he is the son of God or whether he is just a, a prophet of God, this, this, is, this is amazing. This is miraculous. And he begins, to, he begins to follow and he falls face first in the fishes. He's at the knees of Jesus, it says. Now, Think about how do you get the idea of face first in the fishes. You're, you, you got these boats. They didn't make the boat just come up to your ankle where you could trip and fall in. Most of the boats would be at least to, your, to the height of your knee or a little bit higher so that as they're filling this, I mean, the, the boats are filled to the point of sinking. The nets are breaking. There's fish everywhere. Peter doesn't care about that. If you've been around fishing at all, if you've ever flopped fish into a boat, it's not necessarily clean. I mean, it's not gross and disgusting. Well, for some of you, you might think, I don't, I don't find it gross and disgusting. But it's not the cleanest of things. There's slime, there's blood, there's other stuff that's floating, or not floating, but all, all on the, the deck. And you sort of look at it, and it's like, ugh. And here, Peter, all of a sudden, he gets down, falls down at the feet and the knees of Jesus, wraps himself around, and he, he speaks to him. He doesn't, he doesn't speak angrily, but rather with awe and respect. Peter is going to look at him and he's going to say, please, depart from me. Go, go, go away. There is this overwhelming sense of unworthiness when he is brought before the agent of God or before God, and before God himself. We know that Christ is God. And he is brought before him and he really gets a picture of who God is when he understands that this is the divine being who is here in front of me, the one who controls nature, the one who guided me, I had no clue where fish were. I'm the fisherman. He's the carpenter, and yet he knew. And he, he, he realizes very quickly that he is not worthy. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is brought before the throne room of God, and he realizes for a moment, I'm not worthy. You see, when we get a picture of the holiness and the majesty and the splendor of our God, we quickly begin to realize we are not worthy. 
And it is by God's grace that we are not consumed. His mercies, they, they are new each day. And we look and we say, God, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to be used. I am not worthy to stand up here and to preach to you. I'm not. I'm not worthy to be able to go out and to share the gospel with anybody. I'm not worthy. To, I'm not fit for anything. Because he's a holy and amazing God. And Peter grasped that, and he doesn't care that there's fish everywhere. He just falls on his face before God, before Jesus, and he's like, please, please just depart from me. He says, why does he say that? The reason here is because I am a sinful man. He understood not just his, his vile sinfulness, but he also understood that the character of God is demonstrated here. He understood that what God and what Jesus just showed him, he didn't feel worthy. He did not feel worthy to receive the bountiful blessings that God has bestowed upon him. He looks and he says, I, I, please, just depart from me. I am not worthy. And he calls him, he calls him Lord. He says, depart from me, depart from me, Lord. His request, it's not, it's not just this conventional confession and saying, hey, I need to get saved. But he is, he is really before his God looking and saying, I'm not worthy. I don't, I don't deserve it. It reminds me of John the Baptist where he said, I don't even deserve to, to lace this guy's shoes up because he's a holy God. He is the, the lamb. He is the shepherd. He is the king. He's the one in control. He looks and he realizes God's character. He realizes that he is God's representative, whether he fully understands that he's God right now, but he looks and says this, I am not worthy. I got to thinking about it and I started thinking it's Christmas season where we're talking about all the things that, that we deserve or we want. I started thinking about, wow, how bad a theology do we teach sometimes? Now, I, I know, some, some of the Christmas theology is horrible. But uh, have you ever thought about the fact like, all right, if you're really good, you'll, you'll, you'll not get coal in your stockings. Or, you know, if you're really bad, you're going to get coal in your stockings, which nobody does coal anymore. But that happens. And we're teaching that, hey, if you're good, you deserve gifts. If you're good, you'll get these blessings. Peter, for a moment, looks and says, wait, none of my goodness, I, I don't, when you get a picture of the holiness of God, I don't deserve anything. I do not deserve the manifold blessings that God has bestowed upon me. That is his grace. That is his unmerited favor bestowed upon me that I myself do not deserve. And how many times in our lives does he show us that grace? Does he give us things that we don't deserve? That we, we in, our, in and of ourselves, we have no right, no claim to them. And Peter understands that. He says, depart from me. At this moment, I believe he understands his mere mortalness. And it stands in the face of this divine individual. I'm just a man. I thought I had this fishing thing figured out. You're far beyond me. And he moves beyond fishing. And Jesus is going to take us beyond that moment and really get to the heart with Peter. I think with Peter, there's something important for us to understand in regard to serving. Admitting your own inability and your sinfulness is really the best prerequisite for serving Christ. You can look and say, Pastor Tony, I'm not able to teach. I'm not real good. That's okay. He'd love to hear that, that you're willing to teach. You might not feel able. You might look and go, I'm, my abilities, I'm, I'm not real good. I, I enjoy singing. I enjoy the choir, but I'm not real proficient at reading music, so I don't think I, your inability, hey, if you, can, if you can hold a tune or close to it or even remotely close, we'd love to have you in the choir. Say, I, I, I don't think I can always be here, so I don't want to commit to ushering because I can't always, hey, the ushers would love to be able to put you on a schedule and work you through that. You look and say, I'm not worthy. I'm, I'm unable. God takes the inability and he makes you able. That was Moses' excuse. He said, I, I, I can't, I don't talk well. I, God still uses them. Do not look at your inabilities and say, well, I'm just, I'm not qualified to do anything. I, you have to be this great individual in order to be used by God. Peter didn't. And he, was, he recognized his inabilities. He recognized his sinfulness before God. Because then it's about God. It's not about me. If you would have told me when I was in high school that I would be doing this, I would have said, you're nuts. 
I, I, I could do dramas, but I didn't like to get up in front of people. I didn't like to prepare speeches. That was like a waste of time. And term papers, which is basically what you write every time you write a, write a message is you're doing a term paper on a pa- I hated that type of stuff. I wanted sports. I wanted that. I, you tell me I was doing, no way. I was not able, I was not that type of person. It's through God that he does those things. Don't count God short. Don't think that he's, he's not able to make you great. He is through him. So Peter notices that. Now look at Jesus' response. He says, in, in, we should note, verse number nine, we should note that, for he was astonished and all the others with him at the draught of fish which they had taken. It's not just Peter, but at this moment, all these other men with him are like, whoa, we are before a holy God or a holy agent of God, a prophet. Something amazing just happened here. And Jesus is going to respond. There is a terror in these individuals. Peter's like, get away. Because he understands that if I am before this this individual and I know what I'm like and I know how sinful I am and I know what's on the inside that no one else does, I need to get away. I, I need that man away from me because when we are exposed to light and our darkness is revealed, we don't like that. We don't like to be near those who are exposing our sinfulness or those who make us feel guilty or those who, who may say something, you're like, oh, yeah, I got to work on that. We don't like that. So Peter's trying to push, push away. And Jesus looks and he says, don't be afraid. Fear, fear not. He's not looking to turn his back on the sinner. He's, he's looking to say, hey, let, come along with me. Be part of this. Peter's, uh, Jesus takes the faith and humble attitude exhibited, and he turns it into this call to serve him. He says, fear not, and, and this isn't the Matthew passage, so it's not, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Luke just gets very, very uh, physician-like. He just cuts to it. He's just like right in, and he, he looks, let's get to the heart of the matter. He says, fear not, don't be afraid. From now on, you're gonna, you're gonna catch men. Jesus looks at these individuals and says, don't be afraid of me. I know you don't feel worthy. You shouldn't feel worthy because you're not worthy. But I'm not here to just take you and throw you out. I want to help you up. I want to graciously help you and move you along in your life. I know that you're broken. I know that you have difficulties. I know that you have hurts. I know that you have pains. Don't run. Don't withdraw. Don't get away. No, you come to me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to come back to Christ. Don't be afraid to look and say, I need to be closer to Jesus Christ. And then look what he says. He says, from now on, you're going to catch men. He doesn't look and say, you have to be this perfect individual in order to serve Jesus. He says, no, don't be afraid. Come closer. Be working on your life. Be working on your spirituality. And you be moving closer and you get, become part of this mission. Become part of the mission that, that Christ has set up. His response, which it always is a, is a teen, even as an adult, it's just a weird, when you think through some of the analogy of fishing for men, it's just, when you catch a fish, what do you do with the fish? You know, if it's really big, you knock it out. You gaff it. You, you throw it in the boat. You let it flop around until it dies. Hey, come to Jesus. I'll hit you over the head and, you know, let you die. And that, it, 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 the, the analogy never fully stuck with me. Or, or I, never, I mean, I understood, okay, we're to go out. We're to, to cast, to bring people in, to, to get that. But the word, the word that Jesus uses is very interesting. Now, he's going to comfort them, as we talked about, but he's going to call them to this mission. The idea is to, to save alive, to catch alive. It's not the idea of to catch and to fillet open and then throw it over a hot grill and, and enjoy the fish. But rather what he's calling them to with this idea of catching men is the idea of catch, catch them alive. We see that with the Game Commission here in Pennsylvania often. That bear gets too close to the, the, the city limits. It's becoming a nuisance. It's becoming dangerous for the bear, and it's becoming dangerous for the people around. So what do they do? They lay a trap in order to catch the bear alive so that they can take it somewhere else where it's not going to be hurting itself and not going to be hurting others. They're, they're, they're fishing for bears at that point. They're catching it alive. That's, what, that's the word that Jesus uses here. He says, catch them alive. Bring them from somewhere that they are and bring them to somewhere that's going to be better for them. He says that's, that's his mission that he's calling these individuals to. And that mission does not, and please don't understand, it's not missions. I'm not saying God's calling everybody to missions. 
but he does call all of us to his mission. He calls each and every one of us to be involved in furthering the kingdom of God, of bringing more people into it so that as they hear about Jesus Christ, they have the opportunity to bow a knee before the king. He looks and says, we are to bring people, to catch them alive, to bring them before this holy God, to help them realize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is that king, that he is the Lord of lords. We, we often think about, when, when we start talking about this idea of uh, responding to Jesus, there comes a time when, when we, we look at catching men and we say, it's hard, it's difficult, is it really worth it? But there comes a time when we have to really change our mind and are thinking about Christ and become humbly obedient and not arrogant and proud toward his ways. That's where the disciples are at right at this moment. Jesus says, don't be afraid. You're going to be fishing for for men. We don't know how long of a time it is, if it's five minutes, if it takes them 20 minutes, however long it takes them to get two boats full of fish from the deep into the land but somewhere in there, or even if it's right when they get to land, they're going to be faced with this, this dilemma in their life that says, do I follow? Do I go after this guy? I have an economic responsibility. I have a family responsibility. What are the people in my neighborhood going to think if I, if I leave my boats here in my nets and I just go follow, follow this guy who's parading around preaching and teaching about God? What are they going to think about me? What are they going to think if I really get wholeheartedly actively involved in church ministry? Is my family going to think I'm nuts? Do they think I've gone off the deep end? What, what's going to happen if I really start sharing the gospel and my coworkers are going to look and go, oh man, they've become that fanatic. What, what's going to happen? They face this dilemma of saying, am I going to be obedient? Is it going to maybe cost me something? But what am I going to do? Now, some of you are wondering if I'm going to say that Al Capone got saved. The answer, I don't think so. I don't know. I'll find out one day, but I'm not pretty convinced of it. But I want to share a story about about an individual with Al Capone. Uh, Teens, you've heard this, so bear with me, but that's okay. You can hear it again. Um, Al Capone, uh, I think fair enough to say most people know, gangster Chicago, you know, all those areas. Um, If you're wondering why the Binkley's were really skeptical about me marrying their daughter. By the end of this service, you won't. Um, but I'll share a little bit. Um, now you're all wondering, like, wait. <laughs> Al Capone obviously made tons of money through bootlegging alcohol, robbing, shakedowns, all the, all the normal gangster things in Chicago. The, he, had, he had obviously his gang with him. One of the individuals that was with him was his getaway driver who stayed with him for multiple, multiple years. His name was George Mensick. George Mensick was, was always by, by Capone's side. He was the one, Capone, if he knew he had a getaway, he knew he had a big job. George Mensick was the individual that Capone would always take with him. And they had a, they had a very close friendship, and it was just an, a, you know, that, tight, that tight friendship and bond. Years had gone by in Chicago, and Al, uh, George Mensick's wife and daughter got an invite to a church service. They get saved. <laughs> okay, this is going to be interesting. What's going to happen here? You know, so, so George Mensick's wife gets saved. George Mensick's daughter gets saved. They do what they, they think is important. We need to start telling dad, we need to start telling our husband about Jesus Christ and about how he can save him from his sins, even as treacherous and as, as disgusting and vile as they are. And we, we need to do that. It got to the point where after, after months of sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel, Capone, not Capone, but Mensik went to, went to Capone and said, I'm done with this. I'm going to, to kill my wife and my daughter. I'm, I'm tired of them talking about it. So he, he goes home with the gun. He has the gun. He, as he tells the story, he, he said, I have a gun in my hand. I'm opening the bedroom door. And as I open the bedroom door, I see my little girl and my wife on their knees praying, God, please, daddy needs you. Save him. And he says he just, he began to weep. He looked at what he was doing with a gun. He set it down. He goes, he talks to the pastor. He gets saved. What do you do now? You're a saved Christian and you're Al Capone's getaway driver. Little conflict of interest. 
So he's, he's looking and he's like, what do I do? What do I do? After Bible studies with his pastor um, and, and spending time with him, he decided, I need out, out of the gang. You don't get out of Capone's gang. That was a well-known thing. The only way out is you died in, in battle or Capone offed you, one or the other. So, so all this happens, it, it gets to the point where the pastor, the church, numbers of churches in the area begin to pray. Say, this is important. We need to pray. We need to be involved in this. So the day comes, he, he gets his affairs in order because he's basically like, I'm done. I'm over. I love you. Goodbye. Can you imagine doing that to your kid, your wife? And he goes to Capone. And the most amazing thing happens. Capone looks and goes, man, you've been a good friend to me. Let me, let me help you out. He buys him a house. He gives him an inabsorbent amount of money at the time. He says, you have done so much for me. I won't take it. I'm not taking it out on your family. I'm not taking it out on you. That's because people were praying. That's because God's on the throne. God used somebody who humbled himself and said, this makes no sense. Let's be honest. I'm going to rationally look and say, well, maybe I can just drive for the not-so-bad things, Al. You know, maybe just for, like, the little bank robberies, but not, I don't want to off anybody anymore. <laughs> Would we rationalize it away? But he says, no, my commitment to God and humble obedience, it may not seem rational, but I'm going to do that. I'm going to follow. Capone sets him up. Mensik tells about the money. He's like, I felt like it was blood money. What do I do with it? He wanted to go into ministry, but yet at the same time, he didn't feel that he could completely be a pastor because of the things he had done. And he, 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 tells, he tells all about this. So fast forward a little bit. And uh, it's a personal story. Sorry. It's cool. I was in college, and I needed, needed some money. I was working at a camp. I needed to pay for college to study for ministry. So I called up a friend. His name was Greg Mensick. is his last name. He's the, the grandson of that little girl. And he says, yeah, we got some money. That's from Al Capone. You okay with that? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. So whether or not you realize it, you are being benefited by Al Capone right now as we speak. <laughs> Some of the money that they had taken, he had set up in a trust fund for people who were studying for ministry. And God used that all, all the way down the road. So here we are because of the humble, radical obedience of an individual. I get blessed. Have that opportunity. Who knew? But yeah, God does. And yet we sell him short. We think you're just, you're, you're God. We, we, we know you're God, but we're not willing to radically follow. We're not willing to radically do that. And that's the choice they're faced with in verse 11. These, these individuals, they're, they're coming to a point where there is going to be a radical change. Because when we encounter Jesus, when we truly come face to face with the Holy One, there must be change. It is not about just living the same life or going back to the old ways. He is Christ. He is Lord. He is King. There's a change in allegiance. We will say, your kingdom come, your will be done. But we really mean, my kingdom come, my will be done. We don't look and say, God, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to be, as long as it doesn't interfere with my, my ways. They had to come to that grips that there was going to be a change in allegiance. It wasn't going to be to the fishing boat anymore. It wasn't going to be to the sea. It was going to be to Jesus. There was a change in expectation. It's no longer living about that moment of fishing and a moment of, of providing and the economic aspects. It's now going to be about something bigger. We need to stop living. If we have come face to face with Christ, if we truly believe that he is God, then we have a responsibility to be living in light of eternity and not in light of what's going to happen today and tomorrow and the next day, but to look and say, it's not just about my life now. It is about what I can do for Christ in this life, through this day, through tomorrow, in order to bring him ultimate glory, in order to put him on the throne. There, there's a change in the values, the things that they want. You look in the gospel, the other gospel accounts. It says they forsook the nets, they forsook the boats. They, they, they put all those things away 
and they begin to value something different. When we encounter Christ, when we truly come face to face with King, the King on the throne, then we have to look and say, wait, I have a responsibility to reflect. I'm not, I'm not necessarily a fisherman. I'm even more than that. The Bible calls me an ambassador of Jesus Christ. I am the one who goes on behalf of Jesus Christ. I'm the one he has sent with his message. I'm the one who is to go out and to reflect his godliness and his character and his holiness to my family, to my friends, to my neighborhood. I am the one who is to go out there and do that, and so are you. That is the mission that God calls us to, that we are to have a new value, that we are to have new expectations, that we are to have a new set of priorities. We'll say, oh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do we do that? Do we, are we charitable this Christmas season? Are we going to, to be more worried about what I get or what I can give? Are we going to be an individual who shows the kindness and the love of Christ to others? Are we going to be actively involved in service? Are we going to be witnessing and saying, these are priorities of Christ? These are priorities of the King? Then they must be priorities of me because if I am a saved individual, then I am a subject to the King. He is the king. One day I will live in his kingdom, but right now I am his subject. And what the king says, I do. We live in America and we look at it, and I'm thankful we do, but we look at our president sometimes or we look at presidents of the past and we'll say, I respect the office, but if he says something or they make me do something, I won't do it. I'm going to do whatever I want to do because I don't like, you don't do that with a king. You do that with a king, you're done. And yet we look at King Jesus and we say, yes, you are king. Yes, you are on the throne but I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not really your subject. That doesn't work. We need to look at it from a Christian perspective. There is a new priority. There is a new perspective. When we come face to face with Christ, it is looking and saying, okay, it's no longer about the fish. It's no longer about the money I made. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about no matter what place he's put me in, whether I am an orthodontist, whether I am a truck driver, whether I am a school teacher, whether I'm a stay-at-home mom, whatever it is, my perspective is I'm going to be the best one of those individuals to the glory of Jesus Christ, whatever I do, whatever I say, however I live, because my perspective is about me reflecting the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that is what we are called to do. That is who we are called to be. Seeing God's power is not a cause to fall back, to retreat, to go, oh, please get away from me, to say, I'm not worthy to serve. But rather, it is an opportunity to draw near and say, God, I am not able. I am completely unable, but I know you are king. I know you have the abilities. I know you want me to serve you. I know you want me to be part, and I want to be part of something more radical than just the everyday status quo. I want to be part of your mission. I want to be on fire for you. I want to get out. I want to go do something. I want to serve you. I want to be involved in the church. I want to go out and tell people about Jesus Christ. I want you to be my king. Coming face to face, to fall flat on her face before the king of kings, not just in the fishes. See, God wants to transform us. He doesn't just transform these fishermen into followers, but he transforms sinners into servants. He wants to take those who look and say, I, I'm just a sinner. I'm nothing. I have nothing. To, you're right. We don't. We have nothing to offer. And yet, he wants to use what we have to offer. He wants to use you. But I, I'm fearful that we tend to have a wrong perspective. Let me go back to Al for a second. But I want to talk to you about this guy they call Uncle Joe. Make it quick, and, and we'll wrap up here. Uncle Joe, as he was affectionately known, was Al Capone's shoeshine boy. He would every day would shine, shine Capone's shoes. Capone would flip him a little butt, bit of money. And, and it would just, it became a thing where Joe would go over to Capone, shine his shoes. And that, that just was something that he always did. There was one day that as he's shining Capone's shoes, the story goes, that he's shining the shoes and there's a raid by the police on Capone's, Capone's hideout. He's, he's worried, Capone's worried about his little, little shoeshine boy, Joe. So he picks up Joe, he's about seven or eight years old, and he sticks him in a barrel, puts a barrel on top, closes it, puts another barrel on top. He looks at Joe, he says, you stay there, I will come back and get you, but you do not move from that spot until I come and get you. Joe said, I don't know how long, it felt like it was days. 
He said, he said it wasn't, but he, it was for a very long time. He said he could hear gunshots. He could hear the police raid. He didn't know. But he said, I'm going to stay here because that's what Al Capone told me to do. And if Al Capone tells me to do something, I'm going to do it no matter what. And uh, so I heard the story, and I had heard it multiple times in my life because Uncle Joe is actually my great Uncle Joe. He's, uh, he's, he's sitting around Christmas table one day, and I'm like, Uncle Joe, he's this Italian guy, Uncle Joe Florio. He would just sit there and he'd be like, well, you know, let me tell you how it goes. And he had that, he had that I can't even do it, but he had that cool accent, you're like, whoa, this dude's a gangster, I love him. <laughs> and he would talk about, he would talk about the stories of, of what would happen while he was shining Capone's shoes. And I remember as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old right in there, asking him, I said, Uncle Joe, did you really stay in that barrel? He's like, yeah. Why? I wasn't going to go in. I did not want Al Capone to find me doing something he, didn't tell, he told me not to do. He's like, I understood. Whatever, whatever Al said, you, you know, you did. You obeyed. You didn't, you didn't argue. So he's like, I was, I was just, I was petrified to do something other, so I stayed there. Story goes that Capone did come back, pulled him out, set him down, said, okay, finish shining the shoes. And he finished shining his shoes. I have to wonder, as I think about that, did my Uncle Joe, this unsaved, wonderful little short Italian guy who just is fun to be around, did he have more respect, more fear, more obedience to a gangster than you and I have to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He looks and he tells us to go. He looks and he tells us to be holy. He tells us to have good relationships, to work on our communication, to be kind, to be respectful. Nah, it's too much work. I don't have time. Serving's too, there's it's too much going on. I know there's all these programs. I, I don't have time to invite my friends. And do we, maybe not violently shake a fist at God, but do we look at the King of Kings and look and go, no. Jesus Christ desires us, like those wise men, to follow him and to kneel before him. He is the King. You and I are his subjects. How do I act? How do you act? As we look at Christmas season, and every time you walk by that manger scene, and you see that little baby, do you see him as the king? I'd encourage you to do something. Cut out a little crown. Put it next to the manger. Remind yourself. Find a way to remind yourself that he's king. And this season, I need to be about submitting, obeying, following kneeling before the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will be on the throne forever and ever to his glory. May that be our life. May that be the mission that we as Faith Baptist Church take forward because that's what Christ wants. He wants us. He wants to use us. He wants us to kneel before him and to go out and to share his goodness.